0: All right, good evening. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 11. Last week we looked at Second Samuel chapter 10, and we began chapter 11. Chapter 11 and 12 are, are very difficult chapters. Um, they're pivotal chapters in the life of David and for the, the people of Israel. Because uh, we find that David is in a in a really peculiar place. If you remember, God had, you know, for close to ten years, David was on the run from Saul. And David, remember, had that moment, that that period of time before he became king, while Saul was still alive, while he was still being hunted by Saul, where he just kind of lost his bearings. There was a time when we just, it was like, is this the same David that we knew in the Bible? Is this the same David that we read about in chapter 7 of, you know, or uh, 16 and 17 of 1 Samuel? Is it the same one who slew Goliath, this one, who's now running for his life? And not only that, but making uh, an alliance with the Philistines? Is this the same David? And then we know that he gets beyond that, and certainly that was a moment in his life, I think it was probably the lowest moment of his life. And we're getting to this other section here in chapter 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel that I believe is really the second lowest time in David's life. And, and I love how honest the Bible is. It doesn't candy coat anything. It doesn't take the characters of the Bible and put them only in a good light. It makes sure that we see everything. And, and see, that's the way God is with us. He, he, he knows that we are sin. We're sinful creatures. We're sinful human beings. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. And he doesn't take his heroes of the faith, someone like David, who is a hero, no doubt, of the faith. He doesn't scrub under the rug David's shortcomings, David's sin. And do you realize that David right now, in spite of the things we're going to read tonight, Story, uh, not, not a story, but an event, events that we know very well, that we've heard over and over again. But David right now is in heaven. He's in heaven. He's not in hell. He's not in pur- certainly not in purgatory. David is in heaven. And guess what the Bible tells us in Ezekiel? It tells us that in the millennial reign of Christ, right? So think of the timeline really quick. Here's the church age. Pretty soon we're going to be raptured out of here, the Bible tells us. And then a period of seven years of great tribulation. We're with the church is with Christ in glory. And then we come back with him at the end of that seven year period in what we know as the second coming of Christ, ending the tribulation period. And then he begins his millennial reign after some battles and other unseasonable things. But he ultimately has a a thousand-year reign with us in our new bodies. Are you looking forward to the upgrade? You won't have to pay for it. You won't have to have it charged on your credit card every month. This is a subscription that lasts forever, right? And so we're going to be in our new bodies, ruling and reigning, serving Christ in the millennium. And guess who's going to be there? Guess who is going to be resurrected, we believe, at the beginning of that millennial kingdom? The Old Testament saints in addition to the tribulation saints, but the Old Testament saints. And and Ezekiel tells us specifically that David is going to be resurrected in the millennial reign. And he's going to have a place in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem that we see today. The Jerusalem over in the Middle East, that Jerusalem. Jesus is coming back with us, and David will be there, and he will be in a pretty official capacity. And would you think that God would do all of that for him? and use him in that way after what we read tonight? You might think, well, God made a mistake. Well, he didn't. Here's the, here's the good news, folks, and I think this is something that's really important for us to understand, is that David was a sinner just like you and I. A man of like passions. Men especially, you can relate to David. Many of us can relate at some semblance of David's life. But ladies, you, can, you could probably relate to him as well. You know, But David and God, when, when God sees us fail, the, the, the major changing point for David was that he was repentant because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But when a man or a woman of God falls into a sin and they truly repent, their heart is broken, they're busted, they ask for forgiveness, God forgives them, right? Because that's what First John chapter 1, verse 8 through 10, tell us that there's a promise there. That if we confess, he's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's good news for us because, guess what, that promise is true for us today as it was for David nearly a thousand, or uh, actually now uh, almost 3,000 years ago. And that means no matter what sin you've done, have you done something really crazy that if, if we were to know about it tonight that all of us would run screaming mad out of the sanctuary and you'd be left alone? Have you done something so bad that you would think that even the angels would, would say, sorry, you can't, you can't come in. Sorry, you don't have the right ticket. You don't have the stamp, you know, the dove stamp on your, on your hand. No, there's nothing like that. It doesn't matter what you've done. And when we look tonight, we see that David did some pretty awful things. Not only did he commit adultery, but then he murdered as well and tried to cover it up for about a year. And Psalm 51 tells us that he, inside of his heart and his very bones were just aching because he was just riddled with this guilt and it was destroying him from the, on the inside. And God loved David so much that he sent a very good man named Nathan to come and to tell David and to basically bring it out into the light. Have you ever noticed any, any kind of... You know, uh, there are some people who get boils and, and things, and sometimes when you get a boil, the, the healthiest thing sometimes that can be done, is you, it get, gets lanced so that the impurities can come out and then you can begin to heal. Or, or, or like a cancer, you know, it, it needs to be healed. But something that is like a, a, like a boil or a, or a blister or something like that, it needs to be lanced so that it can heal. And God loved David so much, and he saw him going through so much turmoil can you imagine the heart of God and during that time as David is just reeling inside with the guilt, knowing that it's just a matter of time before he gets found out. And God says, you know what, David, I love you enough to not let you go through this misery anymore. And because you're not coming clean with it, I have to expose you. And God did. And that was the beginning of David's healing. The beginning. And the same is true for us. If there's something in your life tonight that you're hiding. You can't hide it from him, right? What does the psalmist say in Psalm 139? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? There's nowhere you can go. You can't hide from him. We can hide from one another. You can hide from your spouse really well because they do not they're not omniscient. They're not omnipotent, and they're certainly not omnipresent. There's only one who is, and he knows everything. So don't try to fool him and think that you can get away with it. God knows, and it's important for us to Confess our sin and be done with whatever it is. Whatever you've got that's been plaguing your life, be done with it tonight. Make make a point of it. Let let tonight be the the beginning, like for David here, because God only wants for you to be blessed. I mean, He wants to encourage you. He doesn't want to destroy you. But we have to come to terms with these things. And so, adultery and sexual sin, which is really the elephant in the room tonight, as we look at these chapters. Um. You know, it's a problem outside of the church. It's a very big problem outside of the church. And even in the church, it's just—it's almost as bad in the church. And we've all been around long enough to hear of pastors and other church leaders throughout you know, the decades that have fallen into these kinds of things. And I would encourage you to pray for pastors and teachers, anybody in, in, in leadership in the church, whether it's a worship leader, a Sunday school teacher, it doesn't matter, be in prayer for those people because the devil wants to make a fool out of them as quickly as possible. He wants to tarnish their, their witness. He wants to destroy them because if he can grab one and shake that tree, he can, he can hurt a lot of people. And, and I've, I've seen things like that happen, and you have too. And so it's important, uh, this topic is especially important. It's an uncomfortable one, but it's, it's, it's been the, the ruin of many people. Many relationships, many marriages, many families are destroyed. And we're going to see that David's family was pretty much messed up. It was, very, uh, it was hurt very badly. Some would say very dysfunctional. Um, as, we, as we get into Second Samuel, uh, after this chapter and going into chapter 13 especially, we're going to see the breakdown of his own family. And it's going to be a result and the consequence of his sin. And God told him that that would happen. And so it behooves us to come to face-to-face with this and to deal with it. And that's why, again, can I just say that it's one of the blessings of line-upon-line teaching. One of the reasons we go line-upon-line, book-by-book, chapter-by-chapter, is for this very reason. Because many people, many pastors, will get to a chapter like this, and just because it will make people feel uncomfortable, they'll go, ah, what's next? <laughs> and they go on. They don't like to teach on it. Who does? But the thing is, it's there, isn't it? And we have to deal with these things. And as we go through the Bible in its totality, we're going to get all kinds of things. And we're going to read all kinds of things. We're going to be confronted with everything that you can possibly imagine. We're going to learn about who we are and who we are not. We're going to learn about who God is and who He isn't. And how He deals with sin. And, how, and, and most importantly, His love and His grace and His forgiveness. It's so important to grasp that today because so many people are walking around wounded. They got heavy They got this heavy guilt on them, and they're thinking about things of the past that they've never asked God to forgive them. And even if they did ask God to forgive them, they're thinking, he can't forgive that because it's too heinous, it's too big, it's too ugly, I've hurt too many people, God can't forgive that. Well, guess what? Those are the things that he loves to forgive. Those are the things that the Lord loves to throw into the sea of forgetfulness, the Bible tells us. Into the sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west, they never meet. If you keep going east on the equator, you're going to continue going east. You're going to be going around in circles like a dog chasing its tail, but you're never going to go west. You're going to be always going east. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he has forgiven you? and That, 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 is, the, that is the fact. And see, you and I, if, if I was David tonight, I would be, and, and I think David was, David had a wonderful relationship with the Lord that when he did fall, he cracked like an egg. He cracked and he repented. And even though things were going to be catching up to him, even though there were still going to be consequences to his sin, David had this wonderful understanding of God's grace. And He knew that God forgave him. He knew that God loved him, even after all these horrible things that we're going to be looking at this evening. And and, and next week as well, probably. So it's important Take it to heart, take it to heart what we're reading tonight. And, you know, the song that we sang tonight, I thought was really um, good, at, you know, oh God, let us be a generation that seeks, uh, to seek your face, O God of Jacob, you know, and it talks about our relationship with God. And do you know, you know and, and God, oh God, let us be, um, what was it, um, let us not lift our hearts to another as we speak to God, let us not lift our hearts our lives to another. And what does that speak of? It speaks of spiritual adultery, doesn't it? Because there are, there's a spiritual adultery which uh, the, the children of Israel were guilty of and many of us were guilty of. And there's physical adultery. There's adultery in the mind. And so we have to take a look at these. Let's pick up in, in chapter 11. We're going to read through just the first three verses. That's about as far as we got. And then we'll continue onward and we'll just see how far we get tonight. But this is, a, um, again, just a really moving chapter, especially when we get into chapter 12. I, I, just, I just love the Lord and how he dealt with David. He's just so kind. Never forget the kindness of God. As kind as he's been to us when we have fallen, when we sin. Remember to be kind to others. Remember to be kind to others. The Lord doesn't need Pharisees. He wants children of God who understand and people like us to love people and to encourage them and not beat them browbeat them or make them feel guilty. Believe me, they're probably feeling guilty enough. They don't need us. I am not the Holy Spirit, neither are you, but there is one Holy Spirit And he does a good enough job all by himself. Wouldn't you agree? So, but let's look at the verse 1 there. Notice it says, "...it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle." And they go out in spring because that's when the weather's nice. You don't go out to battle in the middle of February in Rochester. You better be dressed warm, and you better make sure you have proper food, and you better make sure your snowmobile with your chariot um, attached to it has uh, plenty of gasoline And you got uh, those little hand warmers and, you know, they don't do that. They go out when it's warm, when it's nice. When the time of kings to go out to battle, notice that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. Remember, Rabbah is this, uh, the Ammonites' uh, capital city. It's about 20 to, uh, actually, I think it's about 40 miles uh, I forget, like 22 miles, doesn't matter, on the east of the Jordan River, and it's the capital city. Today we know it as Amman, Jordan. That's the same exact city where this happened. Uh, it was formerly called Rabbah. But notice Joab and the army go against it, but David remained at Jerusalem. And then it happened one evening, verse 2, that David was restless, <laughs> obviously, that he, he rose from his bed and he walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof... From his roof, being elevated above all the other roofs, because it's the king's palace. And notice this, that the king had all of his mighty men living around him in the houses next to him. All around him, they would surround the king. Very typical thing to do. And guess what? All of his mighty men are out in battle, including Uriah, but his wife is at home. And certainly Bathsheba knows that David is not out in battle. He's home. So keep that in the back of your mind. So David is up there, and he saw a woman bathing, that he saw her. And it's just not, it's just not a glance. He, he examined her. You know what I'm talking about, guys. It's not just a glance. It's a, a little more of a stare. It's kind of creepy for a woman to, to feel that, but that's what it was. That's what David was. At that moment, he was taken by her. He saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And so David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? David, do you know what you're doing? And I'm surprised that his servants, evidently, they were close-lipped about this, evidently, this event, it seems, until he was exposed and they probably had to be because of their position with David isn't this the daughter of Eliam isn't this the granddaughter of Ahithophel you'll hear his name in a little while the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, David, your mighty men, your, his wife. What are, you, what are you doing, David? He's out serving, and what, what are you doing calling her in? So then verse 4, it says, Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her, her house. Now one thing we have to read is when you read the Bible, read it very carefully. Read what's there and read what's not there. We, this is not a rape. David did not um, rape her. Um, this seems to be a consensual thing, even though David initiated this uh, this uh, event. Uh, it's very possible, and again, the, the Bible's kind of silent about Bathsheba here, but you have to wonder about a couple things. And again, not to demonize her, but in any means. But think about it. She knows that David is still in the palace. Her husband, everybody else. And by the way, they've been in this siege against Rabbah for a couple years. Okay, So the army and Joab and everyone's gone for an extended periods of time, months at a time. And so here Bathsheba is, and maybe she finds David attractive. Maybe deep in her heart, we don't really know. The Bible doesn't say. We've got to be careful here. But Is it possible that in her heart she was thinking, you know, he's such a really wonderful man, he's a great man, and I'd love to be a part of his, you know, one of his wives. I mean, we don't really know that. But did did she find him attractive? That's all I want to say. Did she? And why is it that she's up on the top of her house, knowing that David's house is above, and she's up on the top with no veil, there's nothing keeping her, and she's Bathing herself, and and he can see her very clearly. There seems to be no. She wasn't careful. She wasn't being discreet about it. And again, I'm not saying that she was um, a harlot or anything like that. I'm not saying that at all, but she was careless. She was careless. And ladies, just to encourage you, we started, we ended with this last week, but be, be careful how you, how you dress. Guys, be careful how you do it as well, but ladies, be careful in the summertime and the things that you wear, because you may not know it, but the things you wear can entice a man, and, and it's, uh, there's a responsibility, I believe, for men and women just and be careful not to stumble. You know, now people in the world, men and women, they they really don't follow that at all. They could care less. It's just you know, it's crazy. It's madness. So there's no being careful about anything, and it creates problems. It creates problems, ladies. I mean, I think every woman likes to be looked at. There are women who like to be looked at some women don't want to be looked at but other women want to be looked at and i would imagine that it would kind of boost your ego make you feel good about yourself and that you know and i and i and i totally get it and men do the same thing but you got to be careful you got to be careful especially as a christian woman as a christian man let's think of modesty once again <laughs> And I'm so glad that the majority, the vast majority, if not most of the women, all the women in our fellowship are, are that way. They're, they're very modest in their apparel, and I'm really glad for that. And it's important to really consider those things, because we don't want to stumble anybody. Single ladies, you, you don't want to stumble anybody. Single men, you don't want to stumble anybody. So let's just, you know we have to be careful about these things, because that's the world we live in, is it not? I mean, the, these are the things. This is the elephant in the room, and we have to examine it and look at it. But here they, they go, uh, they committed uh, adultery. She came to him, or he sent for her, and she came over. And, and, and the slippery slope of sin is like this. I think James uh, summed it up pretty well in the first chapter of his epistle. The Lord's half brother said this in verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Remember that. God cannot be tempted, and God himself doesn't tempt. But he may allow you to be tempted by the devil. He allowed, he allowed these things. He allowed this to happen in David's life. Was it to destroy David? Is it to destroy you? Or is it to train you in righteousness? Is it to train you? And I, I believe it is. Because we have to overcome these issues in our life, in all of our lives. And God uses the devil. The devil doesn't th- like to think this, but he, he is a, he's a tool. He's a tool in God's hands. He can't do anything that he wants. He can only do those things that God allows him to do. And he allowed David to be tempted. God did not tempt him. The devil didn't tempt God. God allowed the enemy to tempt him. Because why? The devil knew David. He knew David, just like he knows each one of us. He's been studying us. He knows our weaknesses, but remember, greater is he that is in you, the Holy Spirit of God, than he that is in the world. Never forget that either, because I don't really care about what the devil knows about me. I know he knows a lot, but I don't want to give him any opportunities, and I give him plenty, and I don't want to give him any more. How about you? We don't want to give him any opportunities, but notice what James says, but each one, notice the, notice the slippery slope of sin here, because there is a... a, a um, there is a levels each step of the way we get further it says but let each one but each one is tempted notice when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed then when desire has conceived what happens after that then it gives birth to sin the desire actually does something. Something is done to satisfy that desire. It gives birth to sin. And sin, left unchecked, when it is full grown, it brings forth death. And doesn't the Bible say that the wages of sin is death? That's what we get. That's what we earn when we sin. We earn death. Certainly death in a sense of our relationship with God, if it's not repented of, death maybe even in a relationship, and maybe even physical death, depending on the sin. And ultimately, if left unrepented of, eternal damnation. That's the ultimate death, is the second death the Bible talks about in Revelation. But notice the slippery slope. It, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's it goes by levels. You don't usually get there by just one leap. It's it's a little by little, little by little, little by little. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when the desire has conceived, that means that the desire now is trying to fulfill itself. It's not enough just to see it now. It's got to act. It's got to put feet on it. It's got to do something about that desire. And it gives birth to sin and left unrepentant of, sin continues and it festers and it gets bigger. It's like that cartoon where you got that little guy who lies and each time he lies, he gets bigger and bigger and bigger and that's the way sin is. I'm thinking of your cartoon, Pastor Kevin. I'm thinking of that. But that's what it is. When it's full grown, it brings forth death. It brings forth death. So write James Chapter 1, verse 13 through 16 in the margin here. And also Psalm 1, verse 1. This is one that we know very well. What does it say? Blessed is the man. And underline the word walks. Actually, just turn there. Go to Psalm 1. We're going to take our time in these two chapters before we just go on. Because this hits us at home. It hits our culture right square in the face. (laughs) Look at Psalm 1. And I want you to underline a few words here because you'll see again the, 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 the gradation of sin. I'm trying to think of the better word for it. It's, a, it's just one level after another. Notice, it says, Blessed is the man, notice, underline the word walks, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands. Underline the word stands. Nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits. Underline that word in the seat of the scornful. Do you see the progression there? First, you're walking in the counsel of the ungodly. You're just kind of walking along with them. And then all of a sudden, you're slowing down and you're standing. And you're a little more secure. You're a little more solidified. You're a little more ingrained in it. and You're standing what in the path of sinners. You're, you're right in their path. You're no longer walking with them. You're very content to just kind of hang out and kind of abide there and hang out there. And then what happens after that? There's another progression. It, it never ends there. And then sits in the seat of the scornful. Now you've you're ready to take a nap. You're lying in bed with the enemy at that point. And that's a really bad place to be. Can you see how James what we just read and how this and that's really what happens. And it very well could have been that David and Bathsheba individually for maybe for a couple years had been, you know, noticed each other, you know, maybe you know, David was talking to Uriah, and his wife comes out, you know, honey, it's time for dinner, you know. And David's like, wow, she's really something. Like, okay, i got to stop thinking about that, he says. And so he moves on, and Bathsheba's going, wow, he's a pretty handsome guy, but he's the king, and I'm married, happily married, so forget about that. And then next thing you know, they, the mind starts taking off, and then it's the next thing, the next thing. You know, usually when people are involved in drugs, they never start off with the hard stuff. They never start off with the hard stuff, usually. It usually starts with a, with a teenager, a, a kid in middle school, sniffing glue, Elmer's glue, and then it goes on to something else. You know, Then maybe smoking cigarettes and maybe drinking beer, and then it's smoking marijuana, and then now they're in their late teens. Now marijuana is no big deal, now they're, um, you know doing other things. The next thing you know, there's cocaine. And that's not good enough. It doesn't give me the buzz. And then, and then the next thing, and then the next thing, and the next thing, and then it's fentanyl, and then, it's, and then you're in the grave because it's a progression. The same progression that we see in this kind of stuff, in adultery, is the same thing we see in drugs. And if we look at it honestly, we can just see the, the, the enemy just wanting to drag us down to the pit, and we can't let him. We must learn from these things. We must turn from these things. And notice here back in verse 4, it says that she was cleansed from her impurity. So he took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Why did he lay with her? Because she was cleansed from her impurity. It was her monthly cycle. Let's just be honest. She had had her monthly cycle and this seemed like the perfect storm. The perfect storm. What do I mean by that? Everything was, it's like the devil was hatching this plan. (laughs) And he's like, I need David up on the roof. I need Bathsheba to be cleaning and being a little bit indiscreet. And she's just finished her cycle. And David is up there and he sees her. And during that time, after her cycle, is the least amount, sorry, this is like a biology thing, biology class, but you guys all know this, but after, you know, after her cycle, the likelihood of her getting pregnant is very slim. Very slim, right? But I find that it's interesting that of all this, God did not allow David to get away with it. The likelihood of her conceiving and having a child at the beginning of her cycle is very rare, but God was like, you know what, David? If I didn't allow, if 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 I, if I just allowed you to get away with this, you you might be able to get away with it. But you're the king of Israel. Your men, her husband, is out fighting your battle. Why aren't you out there? What caused them to stay back? We really don't know. But he should have been out there, perhaps with those guys. But now you, the king, you're going to use and abuse your authority to have this woman a good title for this message could be your sin will find you out you know serial killers and mob bosses i, I, I remember watching this program and there was a uh, a mafia boss and people involved in the mafia and they they did these jobs these hits on people, and, and decades go by, and it's an unsolved case, and they haven't been able to pin it down. And then the guy is finally, you know, 85 years old, and he's, you know, eating his bran muffin in Miami, you know, Miami Beach and drinking his uh, Ovaltine or whatever, and uh, the police show up and they take him off, you know, and they find DNA evidence, now links him to the crime that was committed three decades ago, two decades ago, four decades ago. Your sin will find you out. And David's sin found him out. And because he had such a great responsibility, he had such a great role in Israel, he was the king of Israel. God held him to a higher standard. Because of the great responsibility comes great accountability. In Proverbs, it says this, Proverbs 5, beginning in verse 15. It says, Drink water from your own cistern. Now, Solomon, as he's writing to his son, perhaps it's Rehoboam, speaking to his son, trying to warn him of these kinds of things adultery and flattering women, and even the harlot. He says, Be careful of her. He says, Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving doe and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. And always be enraptured noticed by her love, your wife's love. Let her be the one that your heart and your affection, your attention is for. Not some... Other. In Proverbs chapter 6, he goes on and he says, Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, and I'm not saying that Bathsheba was. I don't, I don't believe that for a minute. But for men today, this issue, we have to be very careful. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. I've seen it myself with, with people with men and women, both, their lives have been completely messed up and destroyed because of adultery and fornication. A man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? The rhetorical question is obviously no. Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? The answer is no. So how? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief when he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore it. But it says in verse 32, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding, and he who does so destroys his own soul. And I think as we look at David's life going onward from here, we're going to see him just slowly destructing until the moment that he finally confesses and he's restored. And yet, the consequences are still going to follow him. See, most people think, well, if I confess, then that means I shouldn't have any consequences. But it doesn't work that way. Sometimes it takes us a while to finally fess up to something. And yes, there's going to be consequences for things. And sometimes it takes time for those consequences to be meted out. There are consequences. When you lose somebody's trust does it does it you know husbands you know if you if you've committed adultery with your wife, how long does it take her to trust you again if she's still with you at all? years that one breach of trust is going to take a long time for your wife to trust you again she'll always be wondering about who's texting you, who's this woman oh it's a business associate you know whatever it's a uh, you know my mother, it's uh, you know whatever it is. She's always going to be wondering where were you last night. You know, and you said you were coming home at nine. You didn't show up till eleven. What? Where were you? Oh, you know, I don't know. You know, really? Explain, please explain. <laughs> right? It takes time for trust. Wounds and dishonor will he get, and his reproach will be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased through though you give many gifts. So there's a lot here. We don't have time to read Proverbs chapter seven, but you could read all of Proverbs chapter seven, and there's more more encouragement in this area. Guys, I'd encourage you to read it, to be reminded again, and to be reminded, to be careful we need to be very careful in the world we live in. Because you may not be the kind of guy to ask for Bathsheba to come to you, but you may be the guy who is looking a little too intently. You may be the guy who is flirting with her. And in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So verse 5 back in our text says, The woman conceived (laughs) unthinkable, imagine how surprised she was? She just finished her cycle. Now she's like, I'm pregnant? What? How can that happen? She told David and said, I'm with child. And then David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite is, at, and is, at, is besieging Rabbah with the rest of the, the army. So he sends to Joab and he says, send Uriah back quickly. So when Uriah had come to him, verse 7, David asked him how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. Do you think David was really concerned about the war? I think he was. I think he generally wanted to know. But was that his real motive? I don't know that it was. In fact, I know it wasn't. It was convenient to uh, to get Uriah back because he's thinking to himself, if I can get him to spend the night with his wife, And then she's found out to be pregnant. This whole thing can be covered up. So, what that the child has, you know, blue eyes and red hair? (laughs) You know. So, David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And so, and again, remember, he's been gone for months, probably for several months. Go home and wash your feet. Now, I know I'm getting a little bit touchy with some of this stuff, but I'm just going to be honest, right? We're, we're, we're adults here, and we need to be able to hear these things. So he says, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And So Uriah departed from the king's house, and notice a gift of food from the king followed him. So David sends this gift of food with him, and he's thinking to himself, if I can get this guy really full on a really nice meal, he's going to be with his wife my, and phew, cover this whole thing up and Bathsheba doesn't want this you know, publicity. David certainly doesn't want it. The whole thing can be kind of buttoned up and sewed up and everything's good, right? <laughs> but the Lord wouldn't have it. The Lord wouldn't have it. And he seemed to be rewarding his loyal soldier, but rather he had shown hatred and disrespect for him by doing what he did. And I'm sure that bothered David too. Here's a loyal man, a man who would give his life for his country. And David sends him home with a bunch of food, hoping that he will have a nice meal and clean up and be with his wife and cover this whole thing up. But, verse 9, But Uriah, notice the integrity of this man, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they had told David... Saying Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, "Did you uh, not come from a journey? Why did you go down, or why did you not go down to your house?" And Uriah said to David, "The ark of the covenant and Israel and Judah, they're dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord, they're all encamped on the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat, to eat and drink and to lie with my wife?" As you live and as, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Notice the integrity of this man over the king of Israel, David. I can hear David saying something like this at a different time in his life, but, but Uriah, what a faithful man. Been months away from his wife, and he doesn't even go visit her because he's like, all my brothers are out there in the field. God forbid that I should enjoy a nice meal and be with my wife tonight when they're living in tents. And so, in the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab. Now, now that he sees that nothing's happening here, and he's gotta, now he's got to hatch another plan. Do you, do you ever realize what sin does? If the first, whenever you sin once, if you can't cut, you know, the next thing is you've got to sin again to cover that thing up. It's, it's always a, a a progression like we read in James and a progression like we read in Psalm 1 verse 1. It's always a progression. we got to hide, we've got to lie to hide another lie. And then you've got to lie and you've got to remember that lie because you've got to remember what you told so-and-so, but you told them something different. Now you've got to text them and call them and say, what I really meant was, and then now you're getting your, your stories confused and your whole life is a complete mess. You can't sleep. You're taking pills, trying to sleep. And then you ask yourself, is it really worth it? <laughs> if you could go back and not do it to begin with, wouldn't that have been a much better thing? Oh, if I could just have that relief of having a poisoned, guilty mind and, and having sinned. Isn't that isn't isn't a, a good conscience, isn't that worth its weight in gold? Isn't a, a good holy conscience? Isn't that a good thing? Develop that in your life, a holy conscience, one that's not defiled. A conscience that's not seared by all the filthy garbage that we see in our culture. The movies, the music, the magazines that you see all over the place. Even, you know, just walking in Wegmans, you know, you can see that stuff just in the, the, you know, just the horrible, awful stuff. And everywhere you look, everywhere you look, even people that you know are doing abominable things. But a holy conscience is such a wonderful thing. And notice, in the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah, because he's the only one going back to the, you know, the, the, the place of the battle where they're besieging Rabbah. So Uriah's got this note that David wrote, and he sealed it with a signet so he can't open it under pain of death. But in that letter is his own death sentence. Notice, and and he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Really this, can you imagine what Joab is thinking? His nephew, remember, they're blood relatives. Because remember, David had a sister named Zeruiah and her son, she had three sons. One of them was Joab, one of them was Abishai, and the other one was uh, uh, Abishai, and the other one was... Um, Asahel, that's his name. But can you imagine what Joab is thinking to himself? Hmm, what's this about, David? You want me to and and, he, and, and being his brother, he's faithful. He doesn't know the inner workings, or maybe and maybe Joab is thinking that Uriah had double crossed him somehow. So I'm gonna put him in the forefront of the battle and we're gonna retreat from him and he's gonna get gonna get killed. So when David saw that his plan to get his, him to go to his wife and it wasn't going to work, he hatched another plan to have Uriah quickly killed. And he had to do it quickly because he's got to quickly cover up this pregnancy. Because if Uriah is killed quickly, then guess what David can do as the wonderful benevolent king? He can take this widow, poor widow, and bring her into his house and make her one of his own wives and raise up seed for you know, Uriah the Hittite. What a... What a, what a guy, right? And again, I love David. Don't get me wrong. I'm just I'm, I'm kind of being hard on him right now because we have to be hard on these things. But he clearly wasn't thinking and, and, and trying to cover up things. So time was of the essence because the child was already beginning to form within Bathsheba's womb. So if he was killed quickly, he could um, raise up seed for, her name, or for his name and, and quickly uh, overshadow all of this. And Uriah would be carrying back the letter with his own death sentence. And, um, and so it was, verse 16, while Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew where there were valiant men. And the, the, again, the city was Rabbah. And so then the men of the city came out and they fought with Joab. And some of the people of the servants of David, they fell, they died. And Uriah the Hittite died also. And then in verse 18, Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war. And he charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to David, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Because these are just general things that you don't do in battle. You don't approach a city really close because they can throw things off the wall. They can shoot very easily when you're closer to the wall. So these are things that David asked for, but Joab knew something was up. But ultimately, Uriah was killed and that was all that mattered. And do you realize that he actually put these other men in harm's way and some of them fell as a result of that? So it wasn't just Uriah that David killed. By actually having them do this this stunt, this uh, tactic, he actually had other men died as well. Do you see that? So it wasn't just Uriah. There were a number of other men who died as a result of this. And and notice what Joab tells the messenger. He says, If it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? And who struck Abimelech, the son of uh, Jerubasheph? Was it not a woman who cast a millstone, a piece of a millstone, on him from the wall, so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? And then you shall say to him, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now David's appeased. Yeah, I heard about all the men and it really hurt my feelings, but oh, oh, at least he's dead. He's thinking in his heart. At least he's, now I can do the right thing. (laughs) Two wrongs don't make a right. Right? Correct? (laughs) Two wrongs don't make a right. The adultery, the murder, now is he going to make it right? Two wrongs never make it right. So the messengers went and came and told David all that Joab sent by him. And the messenger said to David, "'Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. And then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. And the archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And then David said to the messenger, "'Thus shall you say to Joab, don't let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another.'" Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and so encourage him. And so um, isn't this amazing? And it would we would do well to remember. Do you remember when Joab first murdered Abner? Abner, remember, was the commander of Saul's army. Remember that it was Abner who killed Joab's brother Asahel. And so. Joab is going to get revenge on Abner, and he kills him in broad daylight in a city of refuge in Hebron, which he wasn't supposed to do that either, but he killed him in cold blood. And and you remember what David said to Joab, and and I want you to see this because this is really interesting because if you start thinking and reading the Bible like this, it'll really give you a depth of, of, of the relationships here. Because remember, prior to this, David pronounced a judgment, really, against Joab and against his his seed, against his house. What did David say after he killed Abner? It says, When David heard that he had killed Abner, and this is in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 28, David says, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab. Yes, his... his uh, his nephew, let, let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who picks up bread. So David had something over on Joab is what I'm saying. And now guess what? Joab's got something over on David now. He knows that he had this man killed. He understands and he'll find out later but now he's got the death of a man and a handful of other men too. He's got something on David now. Isn't that a horrible thing? You know, David probably thought he had the upper hand and you know he was gonna live this good life, and now his own blood now has got stuff on him, got dirt on him that he can he can call the newspapers and tell them of these dirty deeds done dirt cheap. Verse 26 says, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent, notice, and brought her to his house. I, can't, I can imagine he's probably counting the days when her mourning is over. You know, seven days. Okay, seven days. I've got to get her into the house. I've got to take her as my wife because there's a little bump starting to show. <laughs> so David's like, I've got I to gotta let her mourn. I've got to do this right. So David sent and brought her to his house, and she became, notice, his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord was not going to allow David to get away with it. It's amazing. And what I think is even more interesting is how even in this sinful act that God would use this union and through the line of David and Solomon would be Solomon would be the product of the relationship between David and, and Bathsheba, ultimately would lead to Jesus Christ being born. Yes, a Gentile woman, a Moabitess, Ruth, and then Rahab the harlot. And now David and Bathsheba, a wife that really wasn't supposed to be his. Now through that lineage, Comes the Messiah. Amazing, isn't it? The grace of God. In Matthew, I, I, we don't have time to go there, but I would encourage you to look at the first six verses of Matthew chapter 1. Um, because it gives the genealogy of Jesus Christ from uh, Jesus Christ, the son of David, uh, the son of Abraham. And so it starts with Abraham and goes all the way to Jesus when Jesus was born. But in verse 6, it says, And Jesse begot David the king. That's Jesse's, David's father, of course. And David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And then it goes on and on and on and lists all these, the genealogy and finally getting to Mary or finally getting to Joseph. And then, Jesus. I just think that's so interesting. That in spite of all the, the tangled web of human history, that the Lord is, is not, his hand is not too short. And through all these people, you know, you think of Rahab, she gets saved. You think of... Um, um, Rahab gets saved. You think of Ruth, the Moabitess. She gets saved. Bathsheba, certainly a believer, in spite of all the mess. You know, the Lord loves to take a mess and clean it up. (laughs) He likes to take a life that's a mess and he likes to clean it up. He loves to take, I mean, granted, it would be better if the mess wasn't there. Don't get me wrong, but you, you understand what I'm saying. Most of us came from a mess. I came from a complete and utter mess, and so did you probably. And you remember those days. We come from a mess, and God says, Oh, i got such a great plan for you. I'm going to do such great things in your life. And we're like, I, I don't deserve it. I don't do it. Of course we don't deserve it. But isn't it a joy when the Lord uses us in spite of us? And he loves us, and he's forgiven us. And he, he's like, I don't remember that stuff. Why do you keep hanging on to it? You know, it's like these grave clothes. We hang on to the grave clothes the sin's in our life. we hang on to them long enough, and God's like, "Why are you still hanging why, why are you still thinking about that? Why are you still beating yourself up? Didn't I forgive you? like, 30 years ago, why are you, why are you still hanging on to that? Throw it into the fire, it's done. No, <laughs> oh, and I feel better. If I somehow feel I beat myself up enough, I feel better about myself. then really, who's atoning for your sin? You are. Right? We feel better about beating ourselves up or denying ourselves. I sinned again and then you you go through a couple days of afflicting yourselves. You know, walking around with your personal bag of, you know, a flagellum in a bag and you got it instead of a purse, ladies, you got like a little bag of flagellum there and every day you pull it out you just whip yourself a little bit, you know, because of the horrible thing that you did that God forgave you and you're still beating yourself with it. Guys, same thing. But notice... When her mourning was over, but notice the thing that David did displeased the Lord. And I said this earlier, but you remember in the book of Numbers, when the children of Israel were coming into the promised land, they parked on the east side of the Jordan River, and they were getting ready to cross over into the promised land, and. Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they looked at the eastern side of that Jordan River with the mountain range and all the fertile stuff over there, and they're like, you know what? We don't really want the promised land. You guys go ahead and go. We want to stay on this side because there's enough land here for all of our livestock. It looks really good here. We're settled with it. You know, I know that that's probably better, but this is you know—it's nice. I mean, that's great, but this is nice. We'll settle for second best. And God allowed them to do that. But he says, but you have to go in and help your brothers get the land, and then you can come back and settle. And they did that. They were faithful to do that. But there was also a warning that God gave them. He says, but if you do not do so, if you don't help your brothers before you come back and settle your land, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. That's where it came from. Numbers 32, verse 23. Your sin will find you out. And so, before we go into chapter twelve, why don't we stop here tonight? And uh, I think you would agree this is a, a challenging chapter, but I think it's a, it's always a timely chapter, no matter what, no matter what time you live in. You could live in the 4th century. You could live in the, the 12th century. You could live in the 15th century. You could live in the 21st century. Man hasn't really changed. We continue to do the same things. And that's why this is so important for us. You know, as we look at David. And I love the fact that God forgave David. We'll look at that next week because to me... The next uh, chapter is uh, slowly. We're we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. This is the worst, <laughs> the worst chapter for David, because he's being found out. He's trying to, trying to cover his sin like a dog or a cat trying to cover themselves. But God would not allow it so I would encourage you to pray pray for our let's pray for our own hearts tonight and pray for those who are in leadership whatever wherever that may be even in our government in the church all the positions of leadership and yourselves too because guess what you may not be a pastor you may not be a an elder you may not be a worship leader you may not be a Sunday school teacher But one thing, the, the, the thing that the devil hates is a, is a Christian who really loves Jesus. Who's really sold out for the Lord. Who really wants to walk with him. Who really wants to walk in the spirit. And we become enemies as soon as, you know, I thought I was an enemy to the enemy of my soul before I got saved. But now, he's really an enemy. Because he can't take your salvation away from you. He can't take that away, but what he wants to do is to mar you. He wants to destroy you. He can't have you, but he can make your life miserable and you can give him plenty of opportunity to do it. So I would encourage you not to give him opportunity and make a make a, a decision tonight. And and guys, especially us, but you know, the shoe fits on on, on all of our feet, I suppose, but we have to take a look at that and be honest. And not just allow it to be something, well, you may say, well, I haven't done the physical act with a you know, woman. Or uh, ladies, you might not have actually gone through the physical act of adultery. But didn't Jesus say if you even look at a woman, or if you look at a man with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And so it's not really so much about the physical act. It's about the heart and the mind, isn't it? And so we have to take a look at that. And it's a hard thing to take a look at, wouldn't you agree? Why don't we stand and let's, um, let's pray for that. And, um, and just ask God to heal our country and heal the church. Heal this church and every church, all up and down the street here, all the churches in the, in the city, all the churches in America, all the men, all the women who are in a, a positions of leadership Let's pray for them all tonight. And even our, those in local and state and federal government, let's pray for them. And so, Lord Jesus, we come before you, Lord, and uh, as we look at David's life, Lord, we, we see, Lord, that this sin of his and Bathsheba's, Lord, is, is, is happening today. It, it's uh, front and center before all of us. In fact, there may be some marriages in here and people here who have had marriages that were dissolved because of those things. And maybe some right now going through the hurt of, of, the, of the restoration of trust. Lord, but we're thankful that you are the God who sees you, are the God who loves you, are the God who knows all things. And Lord, help us as men and women of God. Men and women of God, Lord, help us to, to come clean with you tonight in the privacy of our own hearts. lord I, I I just thank you that Lord, you would have you would much rather have dealt with David if he would just came to you quietly immediately, Lord, help us to not drag our feet any longer, Lord, and like it says in psalm fifty two he says when my bones are roaring through day and night and my my, my, my pillow is drenched with tears because of my guilt and shame. Lord, may we be those people that are quick to run to you right now and confess all to you, Lord, that we might be restored and recovered, restored, renewed, filled again. And, Lord, you delight to do so. Lord, your mercy and your grace are abounding and they never end, God. And we thank you for that gentle heart of yours, that we don't see too much in the world. We don't see it at all, actually. But, Lord, your love for us is great. And so please cover us tonight, Lord, and give us that gift of repentance where it's needed. And not all of us, and and perhaps most of us, maybe we don't have a problem with these things. But if we do, Lord, help us to do business with you this very night before we put our head on the pillow and be done with it once and for all, forever. So, Lord, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a good evening.